The Gospel reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what, star, what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was, here, was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, grace and peace. My name is Paul Hahn. I work for uh, the Presbyterian Church in America all over the U.S. and Canada in helping new churches get started and in other missional endeavors, Uh, but I'm really here today because I am Charlie Anderson's grandfather and Mary Fran's dad, Will's father-in-law, and it's great to be with you to to give Tim and his family a little break and to visit with my family and share a day of worship with you. Happy early New Year's to all of you. Um, You know, when I think about New Year's, I think about all the resolutions that I've made across the years, how much weight I'm going to lose how I'm going to eat better, how I'm not going to spend money in certain ways, not watch television in certain ways, how I'm going to use my time more efficiently, all these things. And when I think about that sort of cluster of all my typical resolutions, 
they really center around control. How can I gain more control of my life and my world? And it's a good thing, right? We're made in the image of God, and God is the ultimate controller of things and ruler of things and manager of things. So that desire to, to manage, to be stewards, to, to control things, to steer things, is good. It's, it's God-given in one level, right? But in another level, the whole sort of deal with following God is yielding control, is realizing that we're not in control and that he is and, and sort of giving up on that. And so um, when you step into New Year's, perhaps what we need is resolution that says, Lord, I want to submit to you. I want to give up in fresh ways to you. Alfred Delp was a Jesuit priest and he served in Germany during the time of Hitler's rise. And what he said very poignantly 70 years ago was, 75 years ago, is that what modern people need more than anything else is an upheaval in our lives, disruption in our lives to make us realize that we're not in control. And and Delp himself found that as he stood against Hitler, as he stood for the gospel and against oppression, He was first jailed, then persecuted, then put to death. Philip Yancey, in his great work, The Jesus I Never Knew, talks in his chapter on Christmas about the coming of Jesus and how we love the pictures and the cards of the little baby in the manger and the angels singing. He said, but when I read the stories in the Gospels, like we just read in Matthew's version, I read about disruption. I read about difficulty, about challenge about upheaval. To spend the end of our Christmas with the wise men, to spend New Year's as it dawns with the wise men, is to be willing to embrace God's upheaval with them and to find God's grace there in that upheaval as they did. How did they experience the grace in the coming of King Jesus into the world that was a grace of disruption, of upheaval. First, think about the upheaval they, star, they saw up in the skies, if you will, cosmological upheaval. What was it that they saw and they followed across deserts uh, for months and perhaps years in this journey to find the promised king? What was it they followed? Was it a comet? Was it some kind of special miraculous moment in the sky or a comet who hadn't been noticed before. Some say it was the alignment of Jupiter and Saturn in the house of Pisces in a way that that created this movement in the heavens that had never been seen before to, to, to astronomers in the time. What was it? We don't know. But what we do know is it was like heaven was sending up fireworks up in the skies to say the king has come. The one who made it all has come and entered into the creation himself. The God of the universe has poked a hole in the skies and is stepping in. And so we are sending off divine flares and fireworks in the cosmos to signal that. And that's beautiful and that's good news because what Jesus' coming means is that beautiful creation, those wonders we see all around us in the stars, in the sky, all around us in in creation, about us on earth, it's, it's beautiful, yet it's not all that it will be, right? What we realize is that it's broken. 
right? The world doesn't work the way it should. It wobbles as it turns around the sun. Things inside our ecological systems don't work fully as they ought. There is decay. There is breakdown. There is struggle. And Jesus' coming says, as beautiful as all creation is, this, this upheaval in the skies, these fireworks going off, says there's a greater grace yet to come. There is new heavens and new earth. There's a sense in what's coming in the cosmos for us at the end of all things. When Jesus comes back again, he's going to be so great. This is but a mere beginning of it. I love how poets and, and writers tried to grab this across the ages. Madeline LaEngle talks about this, the Christian mystic talking about the coming of Jesus and yet what's coming ahead. Was there a moment known only to God when all the stars held their breath, when the galaxies paused in their dance for a fraction of a second, and the Word who had called it all into being went with all of his love into the womb of a young girl, and the universe started to breathe again, and the ancient harmonies resumed their song, and the angels clapped their hands for joy at what was and yet what is coming. Beautiful picture. Well, where's the grace for us in this? To realize that, that Jesus still reigns as king over the whole cosmos, that the heavens are still looking for his return, craning their necks, Paul says in Romans 8, standing on tiptoe, as it were, for the fullness of the joy of our salvation to be revealed when it will be completely and fully made new together with us as Jesus' people. How do we carry that forward? Well, we get to be stewards of that now. We're sons and daughters of the new creation Now we get to be a part of God beginning to make all things new. Now, I've been a pastor my whole adult life. I also have a hobby, and one of my hobbies is picking up trash. (laughs) I like to pick up trash. I like to walk around neighborhoods, and I love to pick up trash. Why do I do that? Well, as I say to other pastors, if you pick up trash every day, at least you'll know you've done something productive as a pastor today. Something tangible and concrete you can put your arms around. But, but I do it more so because it's my little way of saying I, I can't garden, I can't grow things, I don't, I don't know how to do much. But it's my little way of saying, Jesus, I, I want to be part of your making all things new. My wife loves to go out and work in the yard to, to plant flowers, to, to rake and to dig and to weed and to work. It's her little way of saying, Jesus, I'm part of your making everything new in the world. What are you doing? What can you do in this new year ahead to be from your heart expressing as part of your new creation? Jesus, I want to be a part of the greening of your earth, the part of the greening of Greenville, if you will. Part of of the greening of the cosmos and caring and wondering and expressing my hope in you. I love what Luther said years and years and years ago, 500 years ago, not right now and more. He was asked, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back today? And they thought he was going to talk about some great act of repentance or some great movement in evangelism he would spend that day. He said, well, I would plant a tree because I would know that would be part of Jesus' new earth, new heavens and new earth as he's coming back today. Where do you want to plant your tree in expressing that hope in the Lord. The other application here is is just to celebrate 
the wonders that are in creation now and to worship in response the way the wise men worship in response to the star moving overhead. We, Fran and I were on a trip this summer and, and, and we, we planned it to come in and out of Greenville as we do. We flew in, out, in and out of Greenville on our way to New York because we wanted to be here when the eclipse came through. We wanted to get the full experience that Greenville offered. And we got here just a couple of hours and we got out of the airport and, and drove over and, and Mary Fran and Will were at work and we had the house and, and we were taking, we would leave the babysitter with Charlie. And, and so we just sat there in their front yard and waited for the eclipse. And I had the NPR coverage on the radio blaring out of my truck as we were waiting for that and adjusting our, our blackout glasses and all that stuff. And amazing coverage was going on from eclipse sites all over the country as, as the eclipse passed through. And, 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 and so interviewed by the two anchors on NPR radio was the science editor of the San Francisco Chronicle, a, a younger woman was, was in that role, and she was asked, um, what are you excited about this eclipse? You're, you're at one of these sites. Have you ever seen one before? She said, no, I never have. But I did speak recently to a very famous astrophysicist who I won't name because I want to protect him and his privacy. But he told me he saw the last one. And he said, literally in the two minutes of that eclipse movement, I was moved from being agnostic to being a Christian. This was on NPR. And the anchors quickly sort of said, well, let's stick to the science of this thing. And she wouldn't budge. And she said, well, the science sometimes leads us to the spirit of things. And I want to tell you, this man said he didn't just move from being an agnostic to a deist. He moved from being an agnostic to a Christian. And the anchors were, uh, 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 <laughs> and tried to just quickly move in another direction. There's a power there. Maybe you're one of those people right now this morning. Maybe you don't know where you are with God. In the beauties of the normal things of creation. But think about the extraordinary things like this. About that eclipse, about the ordering and the beauty of that about the dusk all around that they described that you couldn't see until you saw it, right? About how you looked up and then saw the brightness of that sun through your blackout glasses. How the patterns of the, the, the shadows of the leaves changed back and forth in the coming and then the going of the eclipse. Doesn't that point to a divine design? Doesn't that point to a word who made it all and then in love stepped into it? And if you are a Christ follower, be encouraged by the extraordinary and the ordinary. And let that push you to Jesus. Upheaval in the skies, upheaval in the cosmos. There's grace there. Secondly, there's upheaval politically right here. There's upheaval in the palace, right? The wise men come and they come to Herod's palace because they're looking for the king that the star seems to be pointing them towards. And it creates havoc for Herod. W.H. Auden in his poem for the time being writes about the havoc this created in Herod's heart and mind. I love this work by Auden who also was a longtime atheist who became a Christian. And he writes in this poem, and it, you know, these are coming from Herod, these words. Today has been one of those perfect winter days. 
cold, brilliant, and utterly still. And this evening as I stand at this window, high up in the citadel, there is nothing in the whole magnificent panorama of plain and mountains to indicate that the empire is threatened by a single danger. Oh, dear, why couldn't this wretched infant be born somewhere else? Herod's an imposter. He's not, he's not really even a full Jew. It's a mockery he's been named king of the Jews, put in place by the Romans. He's, he's an oppressor among a world of oppressors. He, he's wretched. He's, he's a tyrant. But interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell us anything like Luke does about his reign and about how he is placed under Roman imperial power. The wise men here by Matthew, much to our chagrin, right, aren't called kings. They're learned people. They're magi. They're students. They're certainly wealthy people. They're royal types, but they're not listed as royals here because the only royal on Matthew's stage is Jesus, the one great king. Matthew is going to unfold in his whole gospel a new kind of kingship. It's the theme of Matthew's gospel, that God has come in the person as Jesus as king to bring in the kingdom of God, to cause humility to be the way of the king, to cause love to be his great power and purpose and currency to raise up the meek and the lowly. When we're impoverished of spirit, we live and we inherit the earth, he says. To, to give us whole new kinds of teaching about caring and loving and putting off self and putting others first and loving my neighbor as myself as the whole Sermon on the Mount plays out a king who comes to heal and to bless and to teach, a king who comes to give his very life away, to give the life of the kingdom. The grace of political upheaval around Christmas is that the one true king, the king of heaven and earth, the king of all the peoples and all the nations, the king who can draw, as Isaiah talked about, peoples on their camels, from all over the known world to him has come to reign. So the application for us is, is to praise God. In, in, a, in perhaps 2017 as it ends, right, is a year above all other years in our modern history to say, thank God we can have another kind of ruler. Thank God. We are not at the whims of men or women. We are not at the whims of Republicans or Democrats. Jesus reigns. And so how do we apply that? As Christians, we're willing, as Lewis said long ago, C.S. Lewis said so long ago, to be a part of God's undercover guerrilla operation in the world. To pray for those in power over us. But also to stand against them and hold them into account when it comes to standing with Jesus. What were the wise men willing to do to go back another way? What, what, did they, what kind of wrath did they incur from Herod? How did he chase them down? We don't know. We only know that their connection with the true king 
gave the ability to stand for them against a tyrant. Listen, where does Jesus for you in this year ahead want you to say more than anything, more than I'm an American, more than I'm a Republican or a Democrat, I'm a Christian. And I identify with King Jesus. And I'm here to promote his love and his mercy and his issues and his values into the whole landscape of my existence. We used to tell our children when they were growing up, when they were very young, you know, someday you may live in a world where being a Christian here in this part of the world means you might have to be put in prison. You might have to be attacked by the government for living and standing with Jesus. That's the norm. The peace we enjoy as Christians in this country is the rare exception. If the norm comes to us, are we ready for it? We went to seminary, Fran and I, in the mid-1980s. It was, it was a time where among evangelical Christians, there was a great, huge wave of evangelical Christians who were saying, enough on abortion. Ten years after Roe v. Wade, enough. And there were constant stands at abortion centers that Christians made for civil disobedience of standing on the steps and quietly, not abusively, but quietly making a protest and then, and then being willing to stay there even when civil authorities came and said, we'll take you away and stand passively and be handcuffed and carried into jail for standing against abortion. And I thought at the time, I'm never doing anything like that. That's too radical. I'm not going to stand against the authorities. That's, that's our government. I don't know where Jesus is going to call you to make those kind of stands. I don't know what the landscape is going to look like moving ahead. But what the wise men's story screams to us is, identify with Jesus as your king. He is your ruler, and his kingdom is not of this earth. And your calling is to bring his truth, his love, his mercy to bear across all the landscapes of power in the political spectrum, even if it causes you to be persecuted as a result. Grace up in the skies that turns things upside down. Grace in the political sphere that turns things upside down. Thirdly, right, there's upheaval socially. In the social fabric, the wise men leave behind them upheaval in the town of Bethlehem. Jesus is born right. And after that, Herod reacts. Not the first time he's done something like this, or the last time he will do something like this. He put two of his own sons to death because he felt they were conspiring against him to take his throne. At the time of his death, he secretly worked through his network of servants to have 50 nobles in the region put to death to ensure that there would be mourning going on when he died. Think about that. The ultimate narcissism in this twisted, horrible, tyrannical way that's destroying the social fabric all around him. And here is Jesus comes. Why does he ascertain the time when the star appeared inside of a two-year window? Because he wants to put Jesus 
the promised king to death. So he slaughters all the boys in the Bethlehem region that are two and younger at the coming of Jesus. And Jesus himself, right, in his infancy, has to go be a refugee. The king has to flee, has to be a refugee. He's hunted. He has to go to Egypt of all places from Israel. Instead of escaping Egypt to go to Israel, right, the promised land, he leaves the promised land to go back to Egypt because the power at bay at the time is after him, wants to crush and destroy his kingdom. There is upheaval. There is suffering all around the birth of Jesus. Why? Why would God even allow in some ways the suffering to get worse before it gets better with the coming of Jesus? To give us the grace of hope that Jesus is willing to come into the suffering. That Jesus is willing to come all the way down into it and in fact, right, is going to pass through it himself is going to be persecuted, not just here as a babe, but at the end of his journey, is going to be imprisoned, is going to be tried falsely and convicted falsely, is going to be mocked and beaten and spit upon and then stretched out to die, going all the way through the ultimate pass of human suffering to bring salvation and hope to the world to show us that right at the very beginnings we can have hope in the middle of our sufferings because he brings us salvation that comes into suffering and is there in suffering and even uses suffering to bring grace to the world. The early church dealt with this mystery, you know how? By putting other dates behind Christmas, right? We have Christmas Eve on the 24th. We have Christmas Day on the 25th. Shortly after that, the church established two other dates that we don't think about very much. The 26th is the celebration of St. Stephen, the first Christian martyr. The 28th celebrates the slaughter of these innocents in Bethlehem. That was the early church's way of saying This gospel comes into the middle of suffering. And we don't have to deny it. We don't have to pretend it's not there. It is strong enough and powerful enough to acknowledge the suffering, to move into and through the suffering, and to give us a hope with Jesus on the other side of it. So my job is to help church planters get going all over the U.S. and Canada I've got a friend starting, a good friend of Tim Udodge's too, named Jameson. He's out in San Jose. He was an RUF campus minister like Jameson, and then he came to plant a new church in San Jose, California. When Jameson and Christy, his wife, decided to take that call about a year in advance of leaving to go, they had two children, a three- and a four-year-old boys. Uh, during that year between finishing on campus and going to plant the new church, they got pregnant, but pregnant with twins. <laughs> so you're going to now plant a church not with a four- and five-year-old boys heading into preschool and school. You've got a four- and five-year-old, and you've got twin infants. And somehow my phone loves to give me NFL highlights when I'm preaching. Um, 
Uh, at least it wasn't other things. It was NFL highlights. You can check. Uh, and so, uh, you know, and so, and so here is, here is Jameson and Christy now. And so their caregivers, their helpers in doing this new work are going to be Jameson's mom and dad to help them navigate this. Well, as they get going, Jameson's mom contracts brain cancer, blastoma that is radically aggressive. And now a year later, after her first getting this, she's at the point of death. They're taking her off the feeding tube as of last night. And while Jameson was visiting with her two weeks ago in the hospital, he had been suffering a a series of stomach issues. And his doctor called him and said, Jameson, all your results are now in. You have a tumor in your abdomen. And so Jameson, two days after Christmas, just a couple of days ago, had a tumor removed from his colon area that we're praying is just isolated. Things look good, but we don't know. And so he just got home from the hospital two days ago and came home to last night deciding with his dad they were going to take his mom off the feeding tube. How do you plant a church in the middle? How do you have hope in the middle of all that? I don't know what your stories are with your friends or your own life like that, but I know they're there. And this gospel of upheaval, of social fabric, of of suffering, but Jesus coming into it gives us hope that Jesus is there. He's the good shepherd who's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He's feeding us there as he's going to feed us in a moment. And he is with us. And he passed through death to give us life. And he will bring life to us in our places of death. And we can trust him there. Cosmological upheaval up in the skies. Political upheaval in the palace social upheaval through suffering in the community. And lastly, upheaval inside the hearts of the wise men. Worship upheaval, if you will. What is it that draws them across deserts? What moves them with, with just, you know, they have, they have like nothing, right? They have no direct prophecy, no scripture given directly to them. And yet these little fragments that they must have gotten from somewhere, perhaps through exiles in their region long ago, talking about what might be coming and seeing the star in the sky, they move across deserts. They, they bring the gold and frankincense and myrrh. They bring their treasures. They bring their best and lay them before the baby king. Isn't it beautiful Christ really can't do anything for them yet. He's just a baby. But they've crossed deserts to be in his presence. Herod and the scribes haven't lifted a sandal to go a few miles. The possessors of the teaching and the prophecies of God's people across the centuries don't lift the first sandal. But the wise men have crossed deserts. Why? Because there is an upheaval in their hearts that says, Jesus, you are everything. 
and I give all that I have to you. All of my life is a service of worship to you. Can I tell you what my resolution in 18 is going to be? It's kind of a twin one. It goes together. It's a different kind of resolution, I pray. It's, uh, I'm a lot like Herod. I'm very self-focused. I'm very narcissistic, and I'm praying that 18 would be the year where I don't make it about me, but I do make it about Jesus. That I make 18 the year of worship, not hyper-concerned about Paul, but deep, joyful worship of Jesus in, in the picking up of trash, in the engaging the political sphere, in the entering into the sufferings of others, in, in all of it, to be my year of worship. And I love that because that's not a controlling resolution. That's a responding resolution to the great love of Jesus for me and the world. Leave you with a little story that Brendan Manning tells, the lay Catholic priest. And the story is told of a little boy in Anderson, South Carolina, just down the road, Christmas 1980. And he lives with his mother. She's a single parent. And she's wrapping up Christmas gifts on Christmas Eve um, for their little family. And the seven-year-old boy comes into his mom and, and, and she says, can you, Richard, can you help me? Yes, Mama. We're going to church tomorrow morning on Christmas morning. Could you shine my shoes for me? They're really beat up and, and here's a little polish. Could you just shine them up a bit for me? Yes, Mama. And he takes them in the other room while she finishes the wrapping and, and after a bit brings them back and hands them to her. And she is delighted. He's done his best and they are there and they look beautiful to her. They're not perfectly done right, but they're gorgeous to her. And she said, thank you, Richard. And she gives him a quarter for doing that. Thanks for helping mama. Well, the next morning they get up and she steps into the closet and pulls the shoes out and steps into them, but feels something in one of them. And she takes it off and there is a little piece of paper wrapped up inside that shoe. And she opens it up, and there's the quarter from Richard. And the note says, Mama, here's your quarter back, because I've done it for love. Jesus did it all for us for love. And our whole lives, just to get to be our little quarter, giving back to him that is our gold and frankincense and myrrh, and to say, Lord, we're, we want to do it all for love to you. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the wonder of this gospel, that you would come at Christmas, that you would step into our world, our broken world, to give us hope, to shake things up, to turn things upside down to cause upheaval in things, Lord, so that we could find new life in you. Thank you for showing us that in the skies. Thank you for doing that in the middle 
of the political and social landscapes. Thank you for doing that in our heart, O Lord. Thank you that you have come to make all things new. We look, O Lord, for your renewing grace to continue in us today and into the new year. We pray, O Lord, especially for those of us who don't really know exactly where we are with you, that you would move in our lives today, or some of us who know where we are and it feels far off from you. Draw us near again, O Lord. Fill us with the hope of this gospel the way you did the wise men and change us. May 2018 be a great year ahead of responding to you and your love to us. We pray it, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your name's sake. Amen.